Welcome to episode 54 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to open up our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, Chris, how are you doing? Doing good, Winston. It was more of like an office week this week, so uh, just a little bit of time on the on the machines, but uh, still got a lot done, kind of in the middle of some research. How about you, Chris? Uh, kind of the same, just trucking along on the UMC. We're, you know, they're in full production right now. Um, and then uh, working on a project that I've been wor- thinking about for the last six months, and I'm getting ready to pull the trigger to like start moving. It's that big piece of stock that I posted a while ago. I think I finally figured out how I'm going to approach everything. And then, so now I'm ordering all the things to get ready for that. I should have that project done by October. And then basically that's all that's been going on for me personally. Um, my work though has been interesting. They called me and the other programmer in to talk about what we, basically to get our input on what we think we need in our CNC department, because it's been doing well. And we they, we agreed upon that getting a five axis, like a, another five axis machine would be great. But then we couldn't agree upon what type of five axis because they have their eyes set on the Doosan DVF 5000 with the eight pool pallet changer. And that comes out to about 470K. It's about 360 for the machine itself and like 100K uh, if you'd get the pallet changer now. If you were to try to get it later, it's 150K. And me and the other programmer, we, we don't know if the type of work that we do because it's so varied. Like we don't have long production runs and stuff. We just have a lot of different types of things coming in all the time. I don't know if the pallet changer would really benefit us. I'd almost feel like uh, we just hired two more people, like some setup guys. So we have the manpower. We actually need more spindles. And so there's a long discussion about what we think that we should do and, you know, uh, what and on top of that, what brand of machine to buy? Because it's easy to just say, let's just get you know two UMCs or something and stuff like that. But uh, it sounded like they want to increase their capability and also maybe start hunting down tighter tolerance work. So Haas was actually out of the picture for them. Um, and then the next thing was like, okay, so Doosan, the DMG. Uh, I brought up Herco, but they've never heard of it. So they're worried about brand recognition and also longevity they're concerned if they buy this machine from a company they're not really familiar with is it going to be there in five years or ten years or something and then the other concern that they had was right now we have like uh we have we have some mores we have a we have a couple we have like six hosses and then we have dusons and we're in this middle of this transition now because we don't want to buy like a bunch of different machines and then try to train everybody to run these machines you know it's, it's going to be hard enough so whatever machine we buy next is going to be kind of we're going to stick with that brand so that we can train everyone at the same time to run you know for example the Dusons they they're going to run off the Fanuc or the Fanuc controller so we have to make sure everybody knows because right now the only people that know how to run that is me and this other guy and so there's a whole lot of things to consider right it's not just the money because the budget could be anywhere south of like half a million but it's like well how does this impact our workflow, what's actually going to give us productivity, uh, what about the training, making sure that everybody knows how to run this, and also are we going to buy a good machine so that in the future it's not so much shopping anymore, it's like, okay, give me another Doosan, you know, or give me more of these. So th- there's been a lot to think about and a lot to talk about, but it seems like 
to get what they want, which is they're really set on that palette changer, the Doosan does come out ahead of its class because of price. Because if you tried to get um, a DMG or whatever, you know, we even looked at Grobes and Hermlays and stuff, like anything like that, it's, you're well into like the six to 800,000 to get kind of the same like style or the, you know, whatever. And with automation and everything. So ends up being a lot. And even though I, we have the work that could support that, they're not ready to take that deep of a dive, which is understandable. And I think for them, the Doosan being at that price range and getting kind of dipping our toes into our palette changer and stuff like that um, is kind of where they're leading to. But they are checking out a few other uh, machines and stuff. And, you know, what's strange is I've always seen DMG Mori as like a really respectable brand, right? But from my personal, uh, me asking around from people, I get a lot of like warnings about them. And it's not that their machine isn't incredible. It's the service that's less than par in the US and specifically, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to make it sound like they're bad. No, they're great machines. It's just that the service in America, like I guess there isn't enough tax or whatever the situation is. People who buy them here don't seem to have good experiences, not only with the service, but also just the whole transaction of the, the actual sale of the machine. And it seems like most people don't have a good experience. And uh, I spoke to an Ellison rep and he kind of gave me the same spiel, but I was worried that he was coming from a more biased position because he, he's, I guess Ellison is really pushing the Doosan machines right now. So I wasn't sure if I could trust him. But then when I started hearing from other people kind of the same thing, it kind of made me realize, okay, so maybe he had some validity to what he was saying. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And there's, you know, when, when you start, it, it kind of like, it's easy to talk about machines when you when you know your budget's like around 100K or 200K. But once we start getting into like the 350 and to 500, I, I kind of was lost. Like I wasn't sure exactly, well, what really differentiates these machines with each other? Like the differences between 50K, 100K, between all these, like which one would you really pick? And then it, I guess it really just comes down to application or what, you, what you're trying to do. But... Um, when I go on these websites and I try to research or look, it it's not very clear as to what, you know, like what is it specifically? They almost, you have to talk to somebody and you have to listen to the sales pitch, I guess, to get the idea or um, or if you have someone that you can actually talk to that's unbiased, that give you a true opinion. I think that's always most forthright. But uh, have you guys ever thought about these machines and these price ranges? Like, yeah, you know, I know like for 5-axis at least, like, as you go up, you start to get, you know, fairly sophisticated uh, and powerful controls. They have some, you know, magic for finishing and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, like, it seems like once you get above a certain price, they all come with Heidenheim, right? <laughs> you know, like, like Kern, Rooters, all, you know, above a certain price, it's like, you don't see much other stuff out there. And I'm sure there's a reason for that. Um, you know, because usually those machines have the higher accuracy and surface finish um, reputation, right? So I'm assuming a lot of that, you know, it's the machine and construction, but it's also probably, you know, the control plays a big part of that. Um, so I assume, you know, even down that, that mid half million tier, they're same thing, right? They've probably invested quite a bit in the control that you wouldn't normally get in something for 150 to 250. Um, so, which means probably to get the most out of it, you got to really learn, be intimate with that control. I'm thinking, you know, I'm talking about like DMG, Celis, or however you say that, those kind of controls. Um, yeah, the commodity controls like Fanuc, you know, I think everyone kind of knows how those work. Yeah, I, I don't know what else. You know, there's, you know, at some point you start getting into linear drives and 
uh, you know, probably all going to have scales on them above a certain price. Accuracy and rigidity or, you know, surface finish should get better as the price goes up in theory, the automation and, and kind of more than just the machine, right? All the stuff that goes around it to get higher productivity. Um, that's, you know, pretty big investment too drives the price up to add to that which is the service right like you, it's inevitable the machine's going to have an issue or, or whatever being able to have somebody come out and take care of it like fast is, is a huge thing and i'm i'm grateful that i live 30 minutes from torrens and you know haas is out there so if anything happens they're out here in like you know that same day pretty much if we need to but um, i can i can imagine the DMG is having a problem and waiting like a week or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't have firsthand experience, obviously, because I'm not buying machines in that class, but I don't, that's one thing I don't think scales with price tag is like necessarily the, the level of service, right? That can be all over the place across the brands and whoever they're working with in the U S to distribute, you know, it's kind of, you know, it, there are stories out there, right? People buying, spending a ton of money on machine and not getting very good service. So. And that's so like, isn't that so like crappy? Like you're a machine tool company and you spent your lifetime or whatever many years building up the reputation of your machine and then it doesn't sell because people are worried that if they need service, like they can't get it. It seems like this this ridiculous thing, right? Like it's hard enough to make a good tool and have a reputable brand. It seems pretty easy to just train a lot of people to have them ready to staff to like service and stuff. But uh, I guess it's just region based, right? Well, I think that and like the high-end machines, if you look at their customer base, you know, they're selling to Mercedes-Benz, you know, they're selling to the big, big like Fortune 50 companies, right, or, or the global equivalent, and they're probably all focused on that, <laughs> on servicing those guys. <laughs> right, and right. Every, everyone else is kind of the next level down as far as priority, I'm just guessing, right, but I'm sure that plays a role in it. Um, Sure, when Audi picks up the phone or Porsche, they, they get pretty prompt service. <laughs> right, <laughs> or right. GM or you know any any of the big guys. But um... one of the the stories I heard from was this guy. His shop has fifty five DMGs, and that's not nothing to sneeze at, right? I mean, that's not like Mercedes or whatever quantity probably, but fifty five DMG Mori's or whatever. Uh, majority of them are five axes. And then it just took him like two and a half weeks to get a service guy out there. That sucks, right? Like, I, I'm, we're just trying to buy one machine, so I can only imagine the total pull we're on. It's, it's hard enough to just worry about what you're buying. And now there's a secondary layer of concern of like, well, what comes after, right? So I think that's another reason why they're, they're more comfortable with the Doosan is because they have Allison backing it as far as support. And they're more nearby us, so if something does happen, like the guy will be out there, you know, same day or maybe the next day or something like that. So, when you start getting up into that price range and you know the intent and the the business, right, what they need it for, then service is a huge part of like the equation, the buying equation. So, because um, that's you're stuck with that, right? If you buy a big investment and then they're not able to keep it running or or get your questions answered or whatever, that's that can be. Very, uh, very bad taste in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So of course, and it's not easy to just turn around and say, "Okay, we're going to switch vendors." Yeah, that's tough, man. I mean, you know, it's for me. It's it's they're the ones writing the check, but it was just we we gave our input based on what we felt like would help the most. Uh, but they're they're doing the research and and pulling the trigger. And actually, I'm really happy that these these younger owners for my job, like my work, they're they're like going for it. You know, like they're not waiting. Uh, they're like, okay, we see the growth. We, we see this department being effective. Like, 
boom, here, we're going to buy machines. Like we're going to increase output. We're going to, we're going to drop the cash to do it because I, I don't know. I've never worked for a company that's been this quick. Like we, we had a conversation about a month ago and then last, the last two weeks they've been pulling me out of the shop and we've been driving to these other shops with the Ellison rep and we've been looking at machines in person and asking questions from the owners and stuff like that. They were kind enough to let us go in and chat with them and see the machine running and stuff. So um, it's been exciting to see that that they're willing to just like get on it and go. So uh, this is a first for me as far as seeing that that kind of speed as far as for growth. So I, I'm I'm excited to be there. Are they they're primary uh, aerospace machining, right? Yeah, I I would say uh, majority of our customer base is like the big aerospace companies that you've heard of, and then uh, military is a big one as well. Okay, yeah, I don't know about the military side. I would think you know aviation right now is kind of. They're kind of hurting, right? So it was funny. Like, so that happened when, when it happened back in like February, March, when it shut down. I was concerned, but we've never been busier. And I, I don't, I guess it's just like a different field of it or something, but it hasn't affected us luckily at all. We've been at, more busy than we have been prior to when I started uh, to this more so that we needed to hire more people uh to to come in and help run the machines and do different things and stuff so yeah i mean even um, even before covid like boeing was kind of shut down or half shut down with the and yeah and i'm not i'm not very well versed in that but we have most of our stuff is from boeing still so i don't know if they have like multiple divisions or only one of the divisions was not doing well i I, i'm assuming they have like a space division and a commercial flight division and then i don't know if they are military and privatized. So I, I don't know what specific division it is, but uh, there's there, we still do a lot of work for them. Yeah, and they still got to keep whatever they've sold up in the air. So there's, I'm sure there's, you know, replacement parts are huge, huge work no matter what else is going on until the airlines aren't flying, then, which is what's going right, on. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was just kind of curious about that. It's good to hear that they're investing because that's like, that's a good data point in, you know, see a bad data point, so. Yeah, every month uh, they tell us this is how much we shipped, this is how much we made. They tell the department so that we can track our growth. You know, like so we know, like, hey, we did really well this month. Keep it up, or we didn't do as well as we did the previous month. We can be more efficient in these areas and stuff like that. And um, after kind of hounding them for like a couple weeks now, I think I finally convinced them to switch all of our machines to like a zero point system whether that's five axis or laying or I don't know that we'll, we'll figure that out. But I basically showed them a video of me swapping two vices on my machine, like two setups. And it was, I did it in like 55 seconds or something. And then I was able to, that, that I can just hold that vice in a shelf forever until I'm ready to come back and, and use it again. And when they saw that video, cause I, I noticed that we spent a lot of our time in our setups because we do really strange parts. Like they're not like, 2d there's like weird stuff like weird aerospace stuff and so there's a lot of like complex setups sometimes and i think if we could palletize them into just simple aluminum plates with the pulse sets for the fifth axis for example we would save so much time and then that would free up our operators and our setup guys and then we can run more machines you know like one person can run two or three efficiently if we had the zero point for all the machines so was that kind of a foreign concept to them they weren't familiar with zero point or they the owners were not familiar with it so like it it took it took me showing the video like of filming myself at, at the shop like hey this is watch me change this setup and i basically just did it and i showed them like look at how fast this is like you cannot deny the speed at which this is done and the fact that 
we can just take this palette or, or this vice off or whatever and we can just store it somewhere indefinitely and whenever that job comes back because it will we could just lift it up and put it back in and we're, we're good to go there's nothing the the program is still stored in there everything's done the guy just pulled like and then that guy is now free to walk to another machine and do the same thing and like we can basically double our efficiency easily like without even trying you know just by changing to the setup so i finally got them aboard and then we did some cost analysis and stuff so um we're, we're probably moving into that as well maybe when we get this new machine we'll, we'll change everything over but it's going to take time because they have like you know 30 40 years of old fixtures and old way we have to figure out how we can transfer over to the new zero point eventually but um yeah it, it's cool that that they listen you know like that they actually see the like and the, the um it's just refreshing because it's not always like that and i'm sure a lot of people who are listening can relate like sometimes you know there's a good way of doing something or a better way and sometimes they don't listen or for whatever reason but it's it's nice to know that they hear me out or not just me but even everyone in my department we all kind of spew the same thing we all want to be efficient we want to be faster we don't want to do things harder so it's cool that they take that into account i've been doing a little like couple of research topics here like one is uh one's easy to get out of the way <laughs> so i'm actually like looking at what it would take to run a second neo here if i it's more just kind of advanced preparation if things kind of keep going on the trend they're going on I, I could see where a second spindle would be helpful to me um wouldn't be this year it'd probably be like 12 months out because i i uh wouldn't do anything before the first neos like fully earned its ROI, um, but it's pretty much a head, way ahead of schedule on that. So, uh, although I had a pretty conservative plan, so I'm not really surprised. Got to look at my power budget. I'd probably need a bigger compressor, which is more amps. So it's like, I don't know if it's really doable. I think at best I could put a second Neo in here. I don't think I could put like anything else in here that draws any more power. I mean, the Neo is actually pretty light power demand. It's the, all the other equipment around it that it's a little bit heavier, the compressor and the vacuum pump, and I need to run that. Um, and I need to upgrade the AC, like I need to go to a mini split in the garage. So that's more amps, right? Although I get some back from shutting off the mobile unit. But um, yeah, so I'm just kind of doing power budget uh, kind of accounting, <laughs> I guess, right now. And I have my electrician back out here. We're going to kind of just talk things over and see how far can we go with the current location. And um, so at what point for you would be the pivoting point to be like okay i need to move out of the garage into a real shop my plan is if we get to that point is we'll just move houses basically because it's where we live it's actually it's not far like i could drive 12 miles and be out in a different county that's uh outside of the expensive metro school district so property taxes go way down uh most of that area is zone for ag so i can get like up to 400 amps three-phase power nice. at, at nice. yeah and <laughs> yeah and uh and mixed industrial on the residential property is not a problem you know in some of those areas some yeah if i stay outside of an incorporated you know neighborhood or so which which is not hard to do we're like right on the edge of our metro area and then it's all boonies behind us or north of us beautiful boonies <laughs> it's the whole country but um yeah, so we actually, you know, we looked last year, we almost pulled the trigger on a place that had a, a shop built on the same property as the residence. Um, just wasn't quite the right, wasn't the right house for us. And the, actually the shop wasn't quite what I needed. Uh, it was like really low ceilings. It was a woodworker, right? So he had big routers in there, but 
I could run like didn't have enough ceiling clearance to run uh, the VMC without poking holes in the ceiling. So, but he did have he had three phase power like everywhere. Huge yeah, huge air compressor and vacuum system, and it was, it was a really nice setup for like cabinet making. Um, same you know same kind of gig as me. He was all one man shop and make. I guess he was making furniture or something. Okay, so I figured you would have thought about it. <laughs> yeah, because I really like the convenience of having the machines where you know just walking out from the house like getting up in the morning walking i don't really want to have commercial space unless like i don't see that working for me or i don't see myself being as productive like that would hurt my productivity there was a good um with intolerance podcast we were just talking about this a couple episodes back or i think uh can't remember if it's peyton which one has the garage shop but he was kind of talking about that same factors like there's a lot of intangible benefits to having the machine right there where you live there's some downsides too like it's hard for him to switch work off and just go to be a guy at home <laughs> it's too, too tempting just you know if he thinks of something to go out there and do it when he probably should be attending to whatever else is going on around the house so uh, that's that's sometimes an issue here too um, but yeah for the most part like I would I don't think I'd be quite as happy with the setup if it wasn't right next to everything else where I spend my time right so yeah, I don't think, you know, I don't see myself ever having employees. So that's, you know, if I was going to grow that way, then I'd definitely be looking for commercial space, obviously. But um, I'd rather, I'd rather invest in robots than have a payroll. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I can see myself going that way. But um, yeah, but that's just down the road. It's just kind of future planning. But I, I could see where like, somebody even asked me recently, like, would you get a bigger machine? It's like, I don't really need bigger work envelope that's like it's more valuable to me to have a second spindle than it would be to have a bigger machine like replacing the neo um it's because i have sometimes i have like two jobs that are due at the same kind of overlapping due dates and one of them might be a pretty complex bit of work that i just you know basically there's no way i could start like stick the other job in between to just had a second machine potentially i could do like short run work on that and the longer jobs on one of them that could actually work but, uh, you know, have to have enough business lined up to really have that make sense. Enough reliable business that's still manageable by one guy. Yeah. I feel like you're, it's, you're in this position where, like, if you build it, they will come, right? So, like, the more output you have, I feel like the more work is going to come. But is, is that something you desire personally? Yeah. I mean, so I don't know, like, where my upper limit. We, I think we talked about that recently. But, um it's like I am kind of focused on growth right now. Like it's working for me pretty good. It's not like I'm not getting to the point where I'm hating this work. I've never had a feeling like that yet. <laughs> so um, yeah, I was just talking to, uh, I was talking to a friend today on Instagram and kind of mentioned how like I was just thinking back how like my day today or now consists of you know getting out of bed, getting ready, and then walking to the garage and and basically getting to spend like the full day machining doing what I love versus like sitting in my car driving downtown when I had the day job right stuck in traffic for 45 minutes and then stuck behind a computer for eight to ten hours and come home right <laughs> so it's like I couldn't think of a better way for me to spend my time this is right now kind of a dream for me so it's working really well yeah so the other thing I was looking at is uh so I just looks like I've got some mold work lined up um it's basically making master molds in aluminum and, and mix six for uh, 
ultimately, you know, casting silicone food safe molds. And they're kind of big, they're like 16 by 12 inch by one inch starting stock. Uh, of course, surface finish is very important since they're casting silicone. So I'm just starting to kind of research um, like how to get the best surface finish in, a, in that kind of aluminum. So MCD obviously would give me mirror finishes. So I'm going to be doing some a bit of research on MCD, uh, getting some pestles in, and then um, there's some other diamond coated tools right that work well for super finishing aluminum. Um, so I'm going to kind of get those. I think the, you know they're a little more affordable. Um, they don't give you mirror finishes, but they're they give you good finishes. It might be good enough. We'll have to see what the client says. What What did you learn? Right now, all I've been doing is talking to people to get some uh, vendor names to talk to. You know, tooling vendors. Because uh, MCD, other than I know, you know, Daytron sells. Uh, they're kind of they show it on social media every once in a while. Their uh, fourteen millimeter MCD it looks like a fly cutter. It's basically a, a face facing mill. Um, I already had that on order <laughs> from like two weeks ago. Um, but I, what I really need for this kind of stuff is uh, MCD, like small ball nose mills for doing, you know, ball finishing work on aluminum. And um, I, so I know Dixie, like all the companies I know that make them are in, in the EU. Um, there's one in Canada that Marvin told me about. Uh, so I'll be talking to them this week. Uh, the, the trick is with a lot of those other companies, it's not easy to find a supplier in the U.S. For some of those vendors, so um, the big, you know, the big MCD toolmaker that I know of is PH Horn, which you can get here, but they're expensive. So, um, yeah, and I'm going to look at. Uh, I think Zeka has some uh, diamond tooling. It's not MCD, but I think it's uh, either PVD or or uh, PCD. I'm not really sure. So I'm just starting to research that. But several sources now for small ball nose mills look like they're probably primarily for the watchmaking industry that I think will work well for this application. Do you have a specific like surface finish target that they call out in the drawing or are you sort of just eyeballing this? Uh, well, they, they haven't given me like an RA this, um, I don't know if they, I don't know if they know that term, but they know what they want. Let's put it that way. So it's going to be more of a empirical, um, or subjective, I should say. Right. So I will send, I will machine samples. They're happy with what they've been getting, I think, um, but they are excited to find out if we can go better or than what they've got so far from other suppliers. So that's what we're going to, you know, so I'll, I'll be making them probably hopefully something that's as good as what they've been getting. And then over time, we'll work on developing other processes that maybe give them something better. Are you going to invest in like a surface roughness tester just so that you can at least quantify for yourself what each finish is? I'm going to talk to them about that. If, uh, you know, if we get to the point where we're in the, really in the weeds on this stuff and we want to start like characterizing it. Yeah. That's, that's already on my buy list down the road. They're not cheap. So, <laughs> so it's kind of like that was, I basically used my profilometer budget to go buy the, the height gauge cause I needed that more urgently. Um, yeah. So a lot of that kind of stuff, it's like the right customer comes along and either their work you know, demands it and they're paying for it through volume or whatever, or they actually just say, you know, we'll find you to get this, which I have, I've had that happen for some stuff. Um, you know, we need you to have this, so go get it. You know, that might push me up to getting it sooner. I think ultimately I will have one. Um, I've only had like two customers that had actually called out RA specs and both of them, you know, they checked it at their end and I was okay on it. 
Yeah, it would be nice to know because I would have hated to have sent them something. They said, oh, you know, it didn't pass on RA. So, I think the worst thing is you, you do such a good surface finish and it's too good for their call out. And then you have to figure out how to like worsen your surface finish. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about that with the mold. Like, um, like I'm not sure like a diamond mirror finish is really the right thing for them. Like that's one of the things we were, I was actually talking to the customer yesterday. Um, they're not sure. Uh, so they, they do take these molds and uh, they do some post-machining finishing on them. You know, I don't, I don't want to say what they do, but um, they do change the surface a little bit. They don't anodize them. Uh, they do some other stuff, but I think like with the mirror plus what they do, it would actually be probably really good. Um, but I do kind of worry, like, I mean, there's things you can do, right? That, that doesn't, it's going to be too shiny, right? It doesn't, or not shiny, but it scratches easy. That's one thing. It's like, yeah, they probably have a way to change that, but are they, what material they're using? Is it silicone? Mix six. Oh, were they casting in them? Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're food, food molds. So the only problem I see with mirror finish and silicone is it will stick like hell to the molds. So unless they have a way to, uh, unless you're putting in ejector pins or you're doing something like some kind of blowout air blow to get it off, it's going to stick pretty crazy. But I mean, even if you provided them a mirror finish there, they have ways to basically rough up a finish. Like either they bead blast it with something to get it to texturize. So it doesn't stick as much. There's a lot of mold tricks that, that you can do to kind of assist in that. So it's, it's not that big of a deal, but it's just typically you want to, do it without it just because you don't have to it's like not having to spray an extra thing in there right for can it's for process reliability but they can they should be able to figure out ways to do that or they give you the the ra requirement um for what they need to get it to done so i mean is this like a hand mold type thing or is this like a press where it gets it automated ejection or no it's so it's like think think of kind of what you would see on like the DIY silicon casters, you know. Oh, okay. For, okay. It's a food mold, so they're basically. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, pouring a mold by hand, and then I'm assuming it's by hand, and then you know peeling it out of the mold, and that becomes the production mold, right? The rubber or okay. the silicone. Then, then your mirror is probably going to look really good then, because if they're just pulling it off, it's going to reflect whatever surface that is. It looks it look yeah. perfect. And these basically. are like the products are like. I think hard candy or gummy candy, which surface finish is pretty critical to get the, that right mm -hmm. look, right? So, um, nice. Last thing okay. you want to see is like the six millimeter single flute tool mark. <laughs> across <laughs> I the probably face buy of chocolate kit. with that. <laughs> yeah, that, the adaptive, yeah, yeah adaptive gummy. There you go. <laughs> that, that's a little CNC treat. So like that. You know, I recently just got a vacuum forming machine. I might try and <laughs> intentionally leave some uh, surface finish marks in there and then. Uh, make my own chocolate molds. That would be pretty awesome. I, I second that notion. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, I, I don't want to give away too much details about this company until, but uh, yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, nothing proprietary, but, but it's exciting. It looks like it's going to be pretty steady work and it's going to push me um, in an area that I really want to get better at uh, surface finishing. Like, like I'm ready for a deep dive on that. Even if I fail on some of the stuff, that's still good data for me. Right. Cause it may not work for them, but it may work for the next, customer that has some crazy requirement, you know, that really does need the mirror finishes like way down at the bottom of the cavity. Right? I can't right, reach right. it with the face mill. So, yeah, uh, no, I, I struggled with that the last couple of weeks on the wheels, trying to figure out how to get better finishes on these interrupted cuts of the wheel face. And like, I was having, don't use diamond tooling on that. <laughs> Just don't use MTD on interrupted cuts. No, no, no. <laughs> 
no, no, no. Yeah, we we uh, I did use the PCD wiper insert, but that was instructed by the Mitsubishi rep to do try it. So he he gave me the, the go ahead, and I told him like if this breaks, you're sending a new one. He's like, it's fine, don't worry, it's gonna be fine. I'm like, all right, all right, because the thing wasn't. I mean, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't super. It was expensive ish, like 125 or something for one insert. It's a, it's a little pricey. So, um, yeah. So so we had I had trouble with that, and like you know, and it was coming down to like okay, is is my piece supported enough? And that's when I changed from the soft jaw to the full plate system. And even with the full plate kind of palette with full support, there's still like these small sections of distortion around the the wheel. And it bothers me, even though everyone's looking at it and they're like, this thing looks crazy. It's like, it's it looks so shiny. There's like rainbows. I'm like, I know, but you guys are not looking at these two spots here and there's distortion. And like, I, I can't sell this. This is embarrassing. And so, Trying to figure out like okay what, and and I got a lot of help from like uh, uh, the guy from I forgot freaking his name Proteum Mock Machining. He was helping me with some, and basically the community reached I, that I reached out to helped me, and they gave me the recipes and they gave me things to try, and I tried a lot of this stuff, but I wasn't able to replicate a lot of things that I see that they do. So it just made me realize it's probably something to do with the work holding or the way that I'm. Hold, uh, machining in in the work holding itself, right? So I've been looking at more fully supporting it putting things underneath or even in vibration dampening substrates even if it's something as simple as double-sided tape it seemed to help quite a bit and that was shocking to me because i didn't think i'd need to go back to that way of uh <laughs> work holding now that i've moved on to this machine but that stuff helps you know like and also uh, one of the things i noticed was the guy from rapid prototyping machine the doc the mirror man basically his table is basically like an acrylic plate and he uses double-sided tape underneath all his like basically his mirror stuff so it opened my eyes a bit about it's probably because he's got those two th vibration like absorbing things that it, he does it dampening basically he doesn't and so that when the cutting force goes into the part it doesn't go back up and distort it in any way if you're looking for really fine surface finishes even like very small amplitude high frequency vibrations are gonna mess that up right wouldn't normally be a problem, but if you're chasing that that perfect finish, that's where you're gonna you're gonna even the little stuff like that's gonna mess it up. So doesn't surprise me. So you know, it's been a lot of that, a lot of testing. Like I sat down for like an entire day and basically started at like one k RPM all the way to fourteen, and I did different depths of cut, different radials, different types of passes, and stuff like that to try to see if I could get it finishes and. It got really good, but I'm still not happy with it because there's there's sometimes they relieve this little distortion or something. But um, just you know, getting my mind around really looking at every single aspect of what you're doing, and this is all uh, face milling, right? Some of it's face milling, yeah, yeah. So you know the the 3D contoured surfaces and, and ball finishing and stuff like that. It was some of it was part of that as well, but I got that to work a lot better than I'm having more trouble with the face melt than I am with the other the other stuff. So I, I'm wondering is a 40 taper too small for a three inch fly cutter is my next suspicion. Hey, I was going to say you should just get a big you know, old like, fly cutter. <laughs> no, I, I, I figured that would be the answer, right? But it's it's not though. And, and I'm wondering is the three inch too big for the 40 taper? Should I be going to like the two inch? so that it's the diameter is not so far away from the center line of the spindle, right? So I don't know, this is all like me theory crafting and like trying to figure out what exactly is the issue and, and stuff, so. And tram, um, tram on the machine is a big factor on those kinds of 
at least on the face mill, you know, large diameter face mills, doesn't take a little, doesn't take much deviation from perfect to mar that all up. Right. And I know everyone wants to joke is because I bought a Haas, but it's like, dude, I, I know I bought a Haas and I know, but people who own a Haas, they've done much better than what I've achieved. So, uh, it's, I'm not there yet. Yeah. It's definitely not there yet. I need to figure it out. So, yeah. I mean, if this, if like machining was this completely push button as some people think it was like, no, everyone would be doing it. Right. <laughs> and we wouldn't be having any podcasts because everyone would already, it'd be nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it definitely takes, um, you know, when you're trying to push the limits on that stuff, it takes some R and D and some experimenting at the machine and learning and talking to people. So I think you and I are kind of both, uh, going down that same rabbit hole, different, different tools and different, I guess, results we're looking for. But, um, yeah, I think we'll end up, we'll probably might end up in the same place in the end. Chris, have you ever thought about just taking that tool and putting it on a three axis machine just to take the rotary axes of the uh, UMC out of the equation? Yes. Uh, I was going to do that cause we have that old Cincinnati that sits next to it. And that thing is like a tank, but it's been, Every time I'm there, they're running production nonstop on us. So I didn't want to stop it to try to put it. But that was my next thing to try is I'm going to take that same tool out, put it in three axis, see if I face something, if it's rigid or not. And then actually we got um, we got an invite from Herco to come out to their Fullerton offices. They just set up one of the new five axis machines there. And I was going to bring my uh, three inch fly cutter with me and like use their machine and do a fly cut on something just to see like is there basically ruling out any variables with the tool itself so that I can be at peace of mind knowing, okay, it's just me and I got to figure something out. It's not, not because of the five axis or the, whatever it is. So, um, it, I'm like, I'm going all, I really want to get like as close as I can to like a quote unquote perfect finish. And I want to do it on this machine. So like they're, they were nice enough to do that. Um, to let, let me go out there in, in a few weeks and, and use a machine to test around him. And also just learn about the Herco because I know I know about it and I've seen what Dr. Phil can do with it, but I've never been in front of one. So it was cool of them to let me come out there and, and check it out. So I'll take advantage of that while I'm there. So I was going to ask you guys, I know um, you sort of led into it, Eddie, um, with your talk of uh, the second spindle. Um, but I personally have been running into a lot of different issues in terms of just efficiency in the shop. Um, so I've got a couple machines down on the shop floor at Carbide3D, but I also have my sort of like live streaming filming studio upstairs. And just there's a lot of little things that bug me. Like I don't have a duplicate setup of all of my tools. Like I've got to uh, bring my uh, calipers up and downstairs. Um, and sometimes I find myself without like um, uh, collet wrenches. Um, I'm wondering if you guys have thought about little things in your routine, in your workflow, that you could probably fix, um, but just because of limitations of your shop space or the tools you have on hand um, that you just haven't gotten around to yet. I'm curious to hear, like, how would you craft your dream station? So, I mean, I'm, I'm in a similar setup because I have, like, most of my tooling and metrology and all that stuff was inside my spare bedroom workshop where the hobby machines are. That's still where I do all like my CAD and inspection and stuff like that. So I need like calipers, micrometers. I need those here. Um, but I need them out in the garage too. Like I was constantly going back and forth where my calipers are my calipers. So basically for that kind of stuff, I just bought, there's a set that goes out there. There's a set that goes here. 
right? So uh, I have duplicates on a lot of that stuff that was annoying me. Um, that's basically one way to solve it, not necessarily the most cost-effective, but uh, it's lean. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so that's that's definitely one approach for tools, especially. Uh, like I have you know, another set of hex wrenches out there. Everything I need out there, I have out there, and everything I need in here, although I don't use them, I'm not as in here as much with stuff that needs tools, um, more the measuring gear or stuff like that, um, I keep in here. And yeah, end mills was the other thing. So I went and cannibalized like all my larger Daytron end mills that I had here that I wasn't really using on the hobby machines like the six millimeter. And I had some eight millimeter that I couldn't run on anything here, eight millimeter shank tools. So those are all now out in the garage and getting used on the Neo. Um, now I'm down in here stealing like the two millimeter <laughs> and the one millimeter tools. Um, yeah, so like most of the tools of my, most of the Datron tooling is migrated out there and, and a lot of the Harvey tooling is migrated out there because I'm using it all the time. Um, yeah, but the, like the really short shank stub stuff is still in here and that's still, you know, it works better on the V250 than the longer tools anyway for me. Yeah, that'd be another thing. If you moved out, you got an actual industrial space. How would you divide up the tools? It'd be like a really bad divorce. Yeah, actually, if I <laughs> if I had an industrial space, I'd be using the machines at home more. I know I would, like, because it's gonna be times when that you know I'm just gonna do it here on the V250 or some idea or something, some little thing I want to prototype. Um, that's the thing. It's like the hassle factor of potentially getting in the car, going to a shop, you know, turning on the lights and all, you know basically powering everything up, but just to go do something real quick would be. Like there's too much friction. Like going in the garage and do that's no problem. Like I can I can fire up everything, get the spindle warmed up in you know about twelve minutes with the compressor and everything coming on from dead from everything being powered down to ready to cut uh, chips. So um, and yeah. you can do all of that while eating breakfast, which is yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Now basically I can get out of bed before I even take a shower. The machines, you know, spindles warming up and. I'm taking my shower and shaving and everything, and by the time I'm all done with my morning constitutional, we're ready to go. So uh, I, that's I, that was kind of what I was talking about today earlier. It's like I love that. So uh, yeah, I think uh, I don't just don't see myself in a like a detached remote space that I have to drive to. I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, at least I hope I don't. I hope there's a different solution that works for me, even if I have to get bigger. Um, which means probably bigger house or bigger land. I should say not bigger house, but that would, that would actually work. Either land or just another garage bay. I do have room. I do have one more bay, right? That's the other, that's my next, like if I got the second Neo, I would probably take over that second bay instead of just having them like, right next to each other. I kind of want them a little bit separated mainly because I, so I have kind of room to work on them and they're not like, I don't know. It just seems like you'd want them a little bit further apart. So they're not interfering with each other from, vibration or anything i doubt that's really an issue with that machine yeah. but would they know. need their own vacuum pumps or could you share them yeah i'm assuming i would need two if i'm going to do vacuum work holding on both of them um yeah that's one of the things so either definitely would have to upsize my compressor and probably so it's, you know i need amps for that and amps for a second vacuum pump another i think it's two horsepower i can't remember what i'm using there but if i got a bigger vacuum pump i'd have to run it all the time well, I guess I would, well, I don't know, it'd probably still be the same amps. I don't really, I'd have to look, do a little research, see it. Does it make more sense to do two separate pumps? Actually, it probably does, because then I've got backup too, if something goes wrong. Right now, if my vacuum pumps goes down, or I have to send it in for a rebuild, that's kind of a 
that that would be a big impact to my productivity. So I got to think about that. <laughs> Probably should have a second one here, you, you know, spare. But, um, yeah, same thing with the compressor. You start to really rely on those things, like the ancillary equipment. It's usually where you get, yeah, I have more problems with that stuff than I've ever had with the Neo. So not with the vacuum pump, more with the compressor, but, but uh, down is down. If any of those go down, I'm out of business for a while. Oh, I was going to ask you guys, um, well, we'll get to it in a minute. I'm going to, while we're still on that surface finish topic. Um, so what do you, this is probably more for Chris because you work with bigger machines. What do you guys, what do you typically, what's your strategy for floor finishes in aluminum? Like I always had, or, or not necessarily floor, but any flat area that you can't, it's probably too big to get it like a face mill into. Are you, like I was using horizontal on fusion and I've never been happy with the results that that leaves with, you know, like a, a single flute face mill, just even, even like a four in one, I can still see like more tool marks than I want with that. Um, and I've been using like, I started playing around with like 2D pocket and just using it as a facing strat, like just a real, just basically to make it walk around the flat area. It really like a You're super right. light cut, but what do you, or do you use a ball in mill and just kind of? No, I still use the flat because the ball would still take too long. But yeah, it would be terrible, actually. I, <laughs> slow, slow I, what I do is I, I look at it and be like, okay, what's more critical? If if the sidewall is like kind of whatever, then I'll, I'll mill that first and I'll leave like 10 thou on the floor. And then I'll go in and do the 10 thou or I might even do 5 thou depths of cut if I really want. But even then, even if you do a 5 thou depth of cut and do like a pocket or adaptive, you don't really get rid of the f machining marks. Like no matter what strategy you use, it's always going to kind of be there. So same thing as you, like I started going into the 2D or, or looking at different um, basically styles of machine marks that I'd prefer to have. And then whichever one to me that looked the most aesthetically pleasing is the one that I went with. But I, I try to make it super intentional. And if it doesn't look like it is, I might even draw like some lines to make it look more intentional. But that, that's, I mean, I don't know. I'm curious to see if other people have other ways to do it. But I was wondering if I was missing some magic uh, parameter or something that kind of, because I can get great like wall finishes and any contoured surface. I'm really happy with all my kind of bag of tricks for those, but floors have never, never been satisfied on any of the machines here. I mean, the Neo does really, you know, excellent. They're super smooth. I'm sure they would pass any RA test, but uh, I guess I just had a certain expectation for like, it all being uniform, right? And the floor is never quite uniform with the rest of it. Um, I'm sure it just, you know, has to do with the geometry of the tool and the way, you know, it's quite a bit of carbide in contact with the floor, so. Yeah, and like, um, you know, I do the, the graphite pencil test, which is what we did the mold shop. Like you run it across the finish and the pencil will pick up if there's like a step or something. And there's never like a step, like you can't really feel or, or see anything, but you just see those machiney marks in it. You know, the, so I struggle with this too. And I was trying my best to try to like get to remove those. But then I took a minute and I went back on Instagram and I looked at people's parts and like, everybody has this. Like I, I haven't seen one person that doesn't have machiney marks on the floor. Now, the, recently there's like one or two guys that I saw that they did some really amazing finishes and I'm not even sure how they achieved it because there was no machining marks on the floor. 
So that was interesting. But that's that's the first time that I've seen that. Most of the time when you look at job shots, you look at parts, there are marks. And like usually it's okay because it's not like there's a step or something. Um, it's not like physically there. It's just a visual remnant of whatever the process is. Any was. kind of like post-machining finishing lasting variable, it'll hide it completely. Like it's so, it's such a minor, like it's, it disappears immediately. But yeah, there's a reason God invented bead blasting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't know. Like I struggled with that too, and then I saw I was looking at the competition. I'm like, everybody has this. Like I'm I'm stressing over nothing. I need to let this go and move on. Like so that's kind of how I let myself get over that. Yeah, and like one other question I kind of had is like, if you have a mirror finish in aluminum, like from an MCD, and you clear anodize it, I'm assuming that gets all matte again, or does it stay super shiny? The if if you polish aluminum before you anodize, it comes out really shiny or shinier than if you were to non-polish. Because I had my, when we do like paintball guns and stuff, I always hand polish them before I send them off to the anodizer because it does look nicer. It has like this, this sheen on it. I've seen that like with a candy, like a candy anodize. Well, I'm thinking of powder coating, never mind, sorry. It works the same way with powder, like the clear powder coating. So it look amazing if it's polished first, but um, I wouldn't sure Yeah, no, it, there's... There's a definite difference between a polished and non-polished surface for, for the aluminum. It comes out better looking, in my opinion, but it depends on what they want. You know, like sometimes they don't want that that shine. Yeah, this isn't for them. Gloss. It's just like once I start this research, I, I start getting some idea, product ideas <laughs> or some places I would want to use that um, if it survives anodizing. So it really, like I have a contrast idea, like super matte and then this one section that's mirrored and then anodize the whole thing. I think it would pop pretty good if it works the way i think yeah you uh, know the cheater way to do it too though if you don't have a polished surface on aluminum and you anodize it if you were to take like mother's polish with the microfiber towel you can mimic that type of finish post-process that's oh after anodizing or after anodize you can actually get it to gloss a little bit with the mother's polish and stuff so um but this this effect is more enhanced if it starts as polished though but obviously, if, if you don't have that, you can get away with it uh, by polishing it post-processing. We've done that as well. Um, it doesn't last, though, of course, right? Because you're, you're on the exterior now. It's not part of the anodized process. Yeah, so, Winston, you were talking about, um, yeah, so shop efficiency. So one, one of the big things, I forgot to mention this earlier, um, that I spent, I think it was last weekend I was working on this, um, I spent some time in Fusion designing some uh, organized, like a e uh, end mill organizers which my tool works <laughs> you know i told you i've moved all the i had everything pretty well organized inside like the the spare bedroom i was using these um they were from amazon they were like these uh eyeshadow there's acrylic eyeshadow holders organizers for women and they were like perfect size for the smaller like the kind of end mills i would use in the like the two millimeter single flute i think they're like 30 millimeter or maybe 35 millimeter no 32 millimeter overall length and they fit perfect in there because um, I keep all my tools in the original case where I can uh, just helps me identify them because um, not all my tools have serial numbers on the shank so <laughs> if they're just loose or like enough to don't keep them in the case like I would never know what they are unless I like it, I prefer to keep them in the case <laughs> anyway for a lot of reasons so anyway I had this organ you know my organization was kind of organized around keeping the cases um, separated kind of by tool size uh, but now like with the the Neo, the, you know, I'm using much longer tools. The, they come in a bigger case from Daytron, so like they didn't fit in, they don't fit well in the uh, the store-bought 
organizers say, and plus the drawer, my tool drawer out there is really low profile. Like I couldn't even shut the drawer because the tool's sticking up too high. So anyway, I had to redo my whole thing um, for the tools out in the garage. And I decided just, I'll just whip something up in Fusion and 3D print it. And I have like a really slow old printer. So I used, uh, I had to like pretty much make a space frame, like minimalist tool things. And that, they, they worked out really well. They print fast, even on my printer. And I can size them, you know, the, met, the model's fully parametric, so I can size them for the cases that I use. Um, and the number, like the number of subsections I want in each tray and everything. It's like I have the whole drawer now perfectly filled edge to edge with these things. And I, like today was the first day I've actually went out and used, like using the Neo after I organized it and was having to kind of live with that system. And it's like so good. <laughs> it's like way better than I was, I was counting on. So, uh, and I, I stuck the models up on uh, Thingiverse and like a lot of other people are downloading them and, and starting to see them pop up on Instagram. So that was kind of good. When I designed them, I was uh, kind of focused on making sure the, the various Statron tooling cases fit in them. So when I set the parametric model, I set it up to let me control the internal dimension, basically make sure I had enough volume in each of the sections to hold the, the various tool holder cases. Um, but Rob Lockwood reached out. He, he liked him. He's printing some for his toolbox, um, but he really wanted to control the overall dimension of the tray so that he could measure his drawer and then adjust the model and have it fit perfectly uh, so it filled the drawer edge to edge or tile enough of them that the whole drawer would be covered. Um, so he, yeah, he made uh, some nice uh, improvements to the parametric model, and, I, uh, and he sent that fusion file to me, and I went ahead and place the one I had on Thingiverse with uh, with Rob's mods and it works really great so you can adjust it I think I have both models up there so if you're focused on just setting up the internal dimensions you don't really care how big the overall tray is you can download one um, one model if you want the uh, better control over the overall bounding box and you download the other one the description on Thingiverse kind of walks you through it, which model is right for you but yeah I really appreciate Rob uh, improving my model it's one of those, you know, you ever start a little project where you're just, just knocking out an annoyance, right? You don't think it's going to really, you don't even know if it's going to like be worth the time. It turns out it's like. Everybody has the same problem. <laughs> it works so much better than I thought they were going to work. It was almost like I, I was not putting a lot of thought into it other than um, the, like the parametric stuff I did. But um, like the, I wasn't thinking about aesthetics when I created the things. I didn't think they were that nice. Um, and they're not really, but they're super functional. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that was, that was, that was pretty cool. So I ended up, uh, printing, I probably made 20, 20 of them, I think, to fill up my whole drawer and, or actually a drawer and a half. I got, I still have another drawer to go fill up. I got to print a few more, but, um, yeah, so those are, that was a big win in my, my, uh, lean progress. And the next thing I still have to do my, I still got to do some Kaizen foam the tools uh, well i'm sorry for actual tools like wrenches and screwdrivers and torque wrenches and all that stuff i need to get those organized that's like the drawer of chaos right now the last one in the toolbox so yeah and i've seen so many inspiring like well-organized toolboxes with kaizen out there on instagram it's like i'm i'm never going to show anyone my door <laughs> until it's perfect but, but uh i i think I think along with everything that you said, because I'm also trying to figure that out for me, when I'm at in front of the UMC, I make sure that everything I need is within two steps of where I'm standing. So I don't like to walk 
far for anything. I have all my torque wrenches here. I have things, I mean, Allen's, whatever, my sockets, my tools, my vices, everything is like within this one Husky bench that we have and, and like a table shelf and that's it. Yeah, this is like your torque wrenches. Do you keep them in a drawer? Or do you actually have them out hanging where you can just grab them? Uh, I, we actually have them hanging off of the the side of the machine right now. We're gonna make this. Uh, we're gonna make this special like uh, more semi more enclosed post for it. I, I don't like the fact that it's like hanging off the the top of the socket or whatever. We're, we're gonna make a nice little holder for them. But uh, we have three, so they're for each one is for each vice and then the rock lock base, and they're just permanent. Like just they're they're both digital, so they just set to that one torque spec. And they never change for that. So when you grab, and we bought different brands, so we know for this brand is for what, and this brand's for what, and that way, you know, everybody knows like, hey, this, you, nobody's not, nobody's allowed to take that to use it for anything else. It's only for that. Don't so, use it as a hammer, please. Right, right. Uh, that, that's my only takeaway is like having everything close by, not having to search for anything, and then even though you have everything close by, you got to do what Eddie does. Like you need to organize your stuff in a way where it's easy for you to find or easy for you to know that it's not there. So the Kaizen film helps with that, right? Cause you have the black surface and when something's missing, there's the white that kind of pops out at you. So I think, I think a combination of that is as much, as much efficiency as you can get, you know, the last thing you want to do is running around looking for something. Yeah. And like the tool, like um, the thing I, on the emails, like, Originally, they were just kind of, they were loose in the drawer, and I kind of had them, I put them, like, in kind of an order, you know, based by size, but opening and shutting the drawer, they were just basically getting moved around, right? So I couldn't keep them in the order. That was the thing, that was, like, the secondary benefit um, that I probably picked up the most on today was, like, now I can find a tool, like, or an end mill super quick, because I know, like, my three millimeters are this row, my fours are this, yeah, it's like, and they're kind of organized by diameter left to right and by reach front to back. Um, so like my go-to tools or my shortest ones are like right up front and I had to retool for a, a job today. And it was like, you know, switch some stuff out from the ATC and put in what I needed. And it was like super quick. And I think it also helps avoid, you know, accidents, <laughs> grab the wrong tool, put the wrong one in the wrong case or something like that. If everything kind of is in the right proper place. Um, but anyway, you're getting back to like, Winston, your question, I would say, you know, tackle the, the things that are annoying you. That's a sign, right? Fix those first. <laughs> Even if you don't have to fix everything, just pick one a day and, and get it fixed and you know, figure out it might be buy a redundant tool or it might be just move it to a different location where it's like more central if you're using it all the time, which is like, like what Chris was saying. But, um, you know, you don't have to do them all at once. It's like, that's what I've been doing it's pretty much since March is kind of working in the shop, seeing what's not working as far as efficiency and then making some changes. And then, then you kind of get on to the next thing, right? Ideally. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a few that I've had to back out cause oh, okay, this isn't going to work. It was better before, right? Like bad change, but you eventually you'll come up with like what works. So, but yeah, some of it's experience, right? You have to kind of be doing the bad process for a while to realize this isn't working. You have to get to a point of just, deep loathing of just a really specific problem, at least for me, before I take action. Uh, there's a lot of little things about my CNC enclosure that I've been rethinking. Uh, like I keep the some of the wrenches uh, that are hanging right off in front of my machine, uh, but because my enclosure is basically the width of my table, whenever I lean in in certain areas, like my like 
my lower body just presses against the wrenches and knocks them off and things like that. So little little things like that, I usually just like overlook like, oh, like I'll just I'll put it back this time. But I never get around to actually fixing the problem. So yeah, you'll get to a point, at least if you're like me, at some point, it's just like, you, it's like that spring cleaning thing. It just, all of a sudden you snap and like, we're not doing anything else. So we fix, fix this, <laughs> like my, my shop back's the next thing. So, um, so like my cleaning routine on the Neo is you know, for the most part, I brush it out or brush the aluminum into the pan. It's super easy to clean. Uh, and then hit it with the shop vac to kind of get the chips and the places I can't reach with the brush or whatever. Um, and that's, that's like kind of my daily post-job cleanup. Um, I don't use compressed air on it to blow anything around. So, but the shop vac is like, I have a big one. It's pretty powerful, but it's like, you know, so it spends this whole day sucking up aluminum chips. Not so good for it. So I've got some, you know, experimenting filters and cleaning it out is a mess with chips and dust and especially fine finishing aluminum dust is kind of a mess. So uh, I just recently switched over to like a bag and First time I'll be changing that's probably tomorrow. So we'll, I haven't even looked since I put that bag on there to see if it's actually, you know, doing its job. So we'll know tomorrow. But that was like one more annoyance, uh, hopefully solved. And yeah, I think the next thing is Kaizen foam. I'm rethinking that. It's kind of funny. I print all these tool, tool drawer things. And I'm kind of rethinking that whole roll around cart that I use near the machine. So I might kind of, I, I think I want, I like the concept of it, but I want one with, this one only has two drawers. Like I want one pretty much a full toolbox out there because um, I'm almost full. I know I'll be adding a few more tools. So that's probably the next thing I invest in um, after the mini split. <laughs> that's, I gotta get that before uh, the summer's over. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I'm talking about the AC in the I garage, mean, yeah. Like, if you wait until winter, you might get a pretty good deal. Yeah, if I wait till winter, then I won't think about it again until summer. <laughs> but uh, actually, plus I want to kind of find out pretty quickly if I'm going to have uh, issues with the current draw. Like, I don't think, I think I have enough for that. Cause like I said, I'm giving back some amps, like the net between what I run now and the mini split's not that big. It's a little bit, I think it's like six more amps to run the, a mini split with the right capacity for that garage. Uh, but, um, and it'll have a heater or at least a heat pump, so kind of keep the humidity out of there even in the winter or keep it from freezing. Like, I figure you can go about this in two ways. You can either pile on all the issues until you reach a tipping point and then you just kind of like bang them all out or you spend like an hour or two a week solving minor problems for efficiency and then it, it can also feel less daunting, I guess. Just Yeah, the, the second one work, works all, I mean, that's a good strategy anytime, right? Because you don't have to invest too much in it and you'll pretty quickly see benefits and then you'll still have every once in a while to stop and do the big, <laughs> the big reorg, the purge, yeah, the yeah. big fix, but, uh, it didn't eliminate that. But, um, but yeah, I think you'll, you'll be happy. It, it definitely it, like improved morale in the shop. This bit that way. I mean, you know, you've heard everyone say is like, why didn't I do this sooner? That's like the first thing that comes out of their mouth after they've made one simple, like efficiency change. So like it, you just got to find your most annoying thing and then just start with that. And you just work your way down to the most least annoying thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and if you, if you have things that are like could potentially cause expensive problems or, you know, mix ups, then that's focus on those two. Like, uh, 
like one of the things for me is the collets, the collet adapters on the Neo. Like there's the one eighth inch one and the three millimeter one are close enough that you could actually put probably a three millimeter tool in the one eighth inch collet and not realize it. And it's not going to work <laughs> once you get into the cut. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I do a pretty good job of keeping those separate. All the rest of them are pretty obvious that they're like not the right size for the tool, but those are close enough to potentially it's a mix up that would lead to some problems in the cut broken yeah, tool for, at the minimum. For things like that, like I've got a couple um, like screwdriver bits that I use specifically to install my threaded inserts and stuff like that. I will take a Sharpie and just color code them. Uh, so all the important ones will stand out when I just look at my drawer. Um, but for the other stuff, I don't know. I'm kind of just stuck in a place where I'm hoping at some point I'll snap and I'll just rebuild my Shapeoko enclosure from scratch. Um, so yeah, we'll see if I uh, decide to do incremental improvements, but there's, there's a small part of me that really wants to just nuke everything from orbit and just start clean. Yeah, I'm actually looking at, like, just started thinking about this relocating my Neo, which is, oh man, <laughs> it's <laughs> dancing me. Started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I only really want to move it back um, closer to the wall a little bit because I so I originally had it measured out kind of based on Daytron's recommended clearance all around and I gave it a little extra <laughs> also because um, I actually thought I was going to have like my stock storage which that's the other that's my next big thing to tackle too is like I don't have a good place to store my my ready stock um, so I've got to get probably heavy duty heavy duty shelf or a cabinet in there for some, you know, the aluminum stuff. But anyway, I thought I was going to have it like kind of behind the machine. That was my original thought. Um, not knowing this is before the Neo came in, like not knowing that I actually you spend quite a bit of time behind the Neo pretty regularly, either adjusting that the MQL or doing maintenance or whatever. Um, and the vacuum pumps back there too. So I'm kind of, anytime I have to mess with that, I'm, I'm behind the machine. So there's really no room to add shelves back there. Um, but it's more room that I need to work back there the way that where the machine sits right now, it's kind of my workbench that I put on one side, it forms a pinch point. So I can't really walk around the left side of the machine. I have to kind of squeeze between the workbench and the front of the Neo. And that's right like where the today where the AC is too, which that'll change once I get the mini split. But um if I push like if I could push the Neo back like maybe twelve inches, I would have perfect like walking around room on both sides of the machine. I could put a tool like my kind of go to tool cart on the other side where it's like, it'd be perfect. Like I have this perfect setup <laughs> and I can almost get there for lack of a pallet jack. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And have to, you know, re-level the machine, but it's just not hard. Anyway, that's, that's on my list of things to keep thinking about and eventually do. Um, I got like other stuff I got to punch out first, so it's not really urgent, but I know I can get like a little bit better efficiency and better ergonomics in the shop with that little, very small change like that. Hopefully you don't have to move the Speedio or anything like that. <laughs> now that you need a, a full-fledged forklift for, so that's not going to happen. And we've we've got it measured out pretty well because we moved the Speedios from the old shop and we knew how we had it set up there. So we kind of know like what works for us. So what have you been working on lately? Boring stuff. I did make one of your uh, pocket NC table covers, um, but I just made my own file. Um, because I like to measure stock stick out with a metal ruler, um, and for that, that ruler needs to be able to touch the uh, metal B table. So I, I put some slots in there uh, so I could do that. 
Yeah, I think I'm going to steal that idea. I do that too. Um, I didn't really think about that when I did mine. If I machined it, like originally I was thinking of machining it and then I would just know the thickness, right? That would be okay. But 3D printing is like random. <laughs> it's not, not a reference surface at all. So, Out of curiosity, why do you have uh, two different sort of levels? Like it's not one uniform surface on top of your cover. Yeah. So that was to have clearance for the collet, the ER40 collet wrench. So it could kind of adjust, but it turns out, because I wasn't, I wasn't really sure how much clearance I'd have, like if it was going to interfere, but it turns out it didn't. Like those aren't necessary. I'll probably remove those from the next design. The wrench cleared. I, I couldn't know until I printed the first one to see if there was enough clearance or if it was going to scrape on there. Um, yeah, but it actually, the collet sticks up. When you actually have stock in it, that's what I wasn't measuring before. But when there's stock in it and it's clamping something, it actually, that nut sits a little bit proud of the, of the chip card. So yeah, I'd probably kill that feature. Is the bottom surface of that cover just flat? Um, Cause I've done something where I sort of hollow out underneath it just by like 0.2 or 0.4 millimeters. So that when you bolt down um, the inner and outer edges are forced down with some pressure against the B table just to prevent any chips from getting underneath. So your printer, like I can't print any under or overhang like that on my printer. Like on the bottom face? Well, so I, I, once you have a top, a flat top surface, you just print it upside down. Oh, yeah, I got you. I got you. Yeah, I have my logo on there anyway. So. Um, but yeah, yeah, if they were both flat, that would work. Yeah, so you just kind of have some tension on it. Is that what you're saying? Like when you yeah, bolt it down? And... I just, I'm thinking about just ways to eliminate chips getting into places where I don't want them. Because the whole point of this is like we're tired of chips getting into little crevices. So, I mean, I don't know if this is what you were saying, but like, if I was going to do another design, I'd put a little skirt around. Yeah, like you said, if you could flip it upside down, put a skirt on the outer diameter. So, because I think the way mine is, like, chips could get under, there's enough gap there that chips could get maybe a little bit under the shield, and I'm worried they would start scratching the, the anodized finish on the table, if they're kind of being ground in there between the chip and the guard, I mean, between the table and the guard. So if you put like a little, like past the edge of the B table, dropped it down a little bit where there's like a really small gap that would keep yeah. any that damage would be chips. Difficult though, because the whole B table rotates and then your plastic would be scraping against the, uh, the main rotary table. Yeah. So if you, there's enough room, like I would drop, I wouldn't have it contact the stationary part. Just have it basically be just a little bit above. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that B right now it's, is a little proud of that. It's not one continuous flat surface. Yeah, if you kind of split that difference in half between the, you know, if the B table sits, say, three quarters of a millimeter high, maybe you do it like 0.2 millimeters clearance, um, that should keep any bigger chips out. Just, you know, some dust might get in there, but that's not going to scratch the finish. So, uh, yeah, that would that'd be one improvement I would make is probably close that gap up just a little bit. Hmm. That's fair. Yeah, although Anna's eyes finish is pretty, pretty durable. So yeah, and also unless you cut anything harder than anodized aluminum, you should be okay. But I know you sometimes do stainless steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The main, I mean, the like the main benefit of that thing is keep them out of that the rotary, uh, I guess the joint, the rotary joint at the edge of the table that definitely gets chips in it. I, I've never had a problem, but um, I hear 
from some other people, like they're, they have issues with that, I guess, locking up almost in there. I don't know if it's skipping steps, but it can get pretty wedged in there and they have to clean it out. It was a bigger issue on the V1 than it is the V2, but there's still potential there. So I think, you know, the shield will definitely stop that from going on. And, and yeah, I was looking at doing one for the, when you have the vice on the table, but actually there's not much, uh, at least, uh, well, actually that, I take that back. That joint, that um, rotary joint still exposed, but the bolts, like the other thing it's supposed to do is help keep the chips out of the bolt, the fixturing holes. And that's already pretty well covered by the vice mount. But, um, yeah, so I, I kind of gave up on doing a version for the vice adapter. It just didn't look like it'd be worth it. It's right. It's not like you use the vice anyway, because you've got that fancy tombstone. Yeah, so I'm trying to. I'm just looking at tailstock, trying to figure out. I, I think I'm going to need it to build the tombstones on the Neo. So it's like I just kind of look at the stick out. It's like I think I, I would get a better result with the tailstock. I think there would be some flex, especially if I want to have a, like a hollow core or something. Like I think I'm still thinking through my design on Neo made tombstones for the pocket ECM for the Neo, but uh, that's like way, I'm way late on that stuff. <laughs> too much, too much going on here. So you uh, had any fun projects? I know you've been work, mostly tied up working on uh, product development stuff for the day job. But... Basically 100% tied up with that. There's a, we just had it's they're not complications, but the scope of the uh, the things we need to tidy up before we ship it have uh, increased slightly. So uh, that's on top of the the workload of hey, do a biweekly live stream and hey, we need some videos on X, Y, and Z. So my I haven't had as much fun time as I want, but um, I have had to start thinking and planning ahead. Um, so those SpaceX uh, Dragon capsules that I was going to sell, I figure a good time to sell them would be August 2nd when the uh, mission or the two astronauts actually went up on the capsule are coming back. Um, so that would be a good time to try and just wrap everything up and, and put out some more content about it. Um, and I have had like a, a couple more like sponsors reach out and I'm like... Eh, it has been a really good excuse to actually force a project um, to rise to the top of my schedule because otherwise I probably wouldn't uh, like let my focus leave work um, and it kind of gets boring when you don't have something of your own to look forward to uh, so just having little things planned out in the calendar like hey I've got to get myself to wrap up one of my own projects in the next two or three weeks um, has been uh, just something to take my mind off just like working on nomad three drawings are you going to send uh binkin and hurley a couple of them <laughs> you know if i could actually get in contact with a public affairs officer who could guarantee me that they would get one i might actually send them a pair um, <laughs> that'd be pretty cool I, I actually i wouldn't be disappointed if i couldn't sell any of these because i gave them all the way to people um it's just like i don't know i've got I think four I can sell now, but if I can find, if I can make four friends at SpaceX, I'd probably send them that <laughs> yeah, way. That's priceless <laughs> right there. Anything uh, new for you, Chris, before we wrap up? Um, no, nothing new. Just flirting with some new potential clients and stuff. So just trying to figure 
how to fit everything in the schedule. I need like an extra 100 hours a day to do everything I want. Clients so, for the, the um, day job or your uh, your side shop? For the UMC. Yeah. Side shop for the UMC. Uh, super excited. Don't want to talk about it just yet because it hasn't finalized yet. So we're trying to get more details and figure out if this is going to work for both of us. Is it um, um, five axis work or is it three plus two? Five axis. Oh, cool. Hopefully you can show uh, it. Some, some three plus two. Uh, maybe... So that'll maybe yeah I'll have to see if I had to guess probably not. Yeah, that's the bane of the yeah right. It's like you, you <laughs> can either make video or, or make money, but you can't do both. <laughs> uh, exactly, it's it's so crappy. But um, no, and also I, I know we talked about it, but I don't think I talked on the podcast. My my work is thinking about using me as an outside contractor to do some extra work that uh, we weren't able to fit in the schedule because we we haven't bought that new machine yet. So. Um, that that's going on on top of me, uh, potential new clients with some really exciting work. Uh, and then I have one personal project I'm working on and my, my due date is October. So these are the three things that are kind of swirling around during my week, but that's it. I don't know. Like this week, hopefully I'll be able to post some stuff cause I'm, I'm doing kind of like, if I do the R and D stuff, I'll be able to, that'll be stuff I can show cause it'll just be sampled or what do you call it? Like, um, Test geometry won't be like customer parts. So uh, hopefully I'll have something. I've been busy. I just can't. <laughs> like my Instagram page, it looks crickets out there because I haven't been able to post anything. But I know. I've been slowly reeling you in and uh, follower count. It's great. I think I've got you at a <laughs> 2.5K lead and slowly closing. I've been reeling you in from 3,000 off for like the past six months. Yeah, I remember it was at three. So you're definitely closing in. I've got another... Well, I'm waiting to see if they accept the quote, but I've got some other work that if it comes my way, I think I, they're, they have no issue with me showing it. So it'd be actually kind of a cool part for the Neo. We'll see. You have to get some longer tools. Okay, guys. Well, I will say goodnight and uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks. Until next time. See you guys. Sounds good. Talk later. Night, guys.